Hello, friends. I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. We're going to cover some feedback and updates. We're going to discuss Hawkeye Kate Bishop, the first volume in the new Hawkeye comic, featuring, yes, Kate Bishop, that Kate Bishop, the Kate Bishop we all love. And then we're going to talk to Pansy Raider Roberts. It's a crossover event that everybody has been waiting for. We're super excited. Pansy is great. And then, of course, we're going to do some recommendations. Okay, feedback and updates. Responding to a recent Question Tuesday, Biblio Aesthetica said, Hey Space Bees, I finally caught up to your mid-July Question Tuesday where you addressed my question. They asked about how to recognize mansplaining, and I wanted to say thanks. I'm lucky that most of my friends are trusted feminists, but sometimes meeting new folks has its pitfalls. I'm working on better communication and reading, and it was reassuring to hear your words of encouragement. I hope we helped a little. Sometimes it's good just to know that people have your back. It could help your confidence. Absolutely. So an anonymous bee on Tumblr, as well as listener Megan, sent advice on how I can finally live my dream and read the whole Animorph series without exploding my book budget. So thanks to both of you for understanding my burning need to revisit this series. Anonymous B also said, There is also a great retrospective podcast called Morph Club by two female friends that's quite funny that you can find by searching for Morph Club Animorphs Podcast. And guess what I'm about to start listening to? We can find anything online. Anything. How did people live before this? I don't remember my childhood very well, but it wasn't as great as it is right now. The future is wonderful. Well, apart from the Nazis that come from the past. That's true. Stupid Nazis. And then a few months ago, we got an email from Addie. And Addie, I'm so sorry we never responded to the email because it was in April when uh, my life started exploding and it never quite stopped. Uh, To everyone who enjoyed the Hugo packet that we put out, Addie suggested two of the segments we included. And she wrote, first off, thanks for answering my question a few weeks back. I found your responses so helpful. In particular, I started reading nonfiction before bed. I used to not allow myself to read some nights because without fail, I would say just one more chapter four times and would stay up way too late. It's way easier to put down nonfiction and get some sleep, and I'm already halfway through a new book. This is such great news. My ideas are brilliant. They are. Nonfiction before bed. Except maybe not political nonfiction if you don't want to get super pissed. Look, I got this nonfiction novel to read. Oh, and I got a nonfiction book, and she's reading it. And, no, I haven't started yet, Monique. Oh. I got the first step, which is to get the book, and it's a true crime. Who's it by, and what's the title? It's called The Adversary by Emmanuel Cahir, and it's a true story of monstrous deception. It's about a man killing women, but it's blurred by Juno Diaz and by Laurent Binet, who... Uh, wrote HHHH, which I loved. This guy, this author, is a master of psychological suspense. What great pre-bedtime reading. I'm going to start it tonight. <laughs> well, let us know how it goes. I will. Maybe I will recommend it soon in this very podcast. So thanks to everybody who wrote in. If you have any questions or comments for us, 
feel free to email us anytime at fangirlhappyhour@gmail.com or ping us on any of our social media. Hawkeye Kate Bishop, Volume 1, Anchor Points, is by Kelly Thompson, Leonardo Romero, Michael Walsh, and Jordi Belair, and it's about Kate and her adventures in Venice Beach, California, starting her own PI firm. Kate has lots of adventures, makes lots of new friends, and also gets to beat up lots of dudes, which I am definitely for. Also contains Jessica Jones. It's wonderful. I was pulling this comic... And partway through, we had some money issues, so I stopped, didn't, just went ahead and bought the trade. I have to say that I'm super glad that I got the trade of this book. It is fine, an issue, but when you have the whole thing, it's wonderful. I said this before, I feel like reading trade makes it for a better experience. And I don't know how the comic industry can address this in a way that it doesn't kill itself if we don't buy the monthlies can still keep going with the trades because it's so much better it's like it's a whole experience and it's a contained storyline or, or at least the beginning of one and i really love that it adds the variant covers too it's just a more in-depth experience i feel imagine reading the first issue and then not having any left which is what happened to me and i don't need to manage because that happened exactly because i got the first issue as a christmas present from russell oh no no spoilers but yikes totally so this comic is about kate finding her way in venice beach and trying to start her own private detective agency and making new friends and moving away from the other Hawkeye, right? A little bit from under the shadow of him. And one of the running gags of this trade is like everybody keeps saying, oh, Hawkeye, it's the dude, right? It's the really cool dude. And she's like, I am Hawkeye too. But I like that it's kind of like independence for her. But it's still looking up to mentors. One of them being Jessica Jones. Part of what I love is all the excellent relationships that Kate has with women, both peers and mentors. Yes. It was brilliant to see women's relationship portrayed like that. And all the relationships were very different, even mm -hmm. the ones with her peers. I guess I get shocked by that because in Marvel comics, I'm not used to seeing it so much outside of Miss Marvel. Do you know what? Now that you say that, it's really interesting because, of course, it's a Marvel comic, but it didn't feel like a Marvel comic reading it. It felt like an indie comic. Well, I really liked it. I think she totally hit Kate's character. It was a bullseye. I did just make that pun, and I'm not ashamed. God, that was great. That was beautiful, I have to say. I'm very proud of this moment to know you. So the first five issues are one storyline, and then there's two issues with another one, a smaller one. Is that how it goes? No. It's the first... Because there are six issues here. So it's the first four, and then the last two. The first four are about a girl who is being stalked via the internet, and she comes to Kate for help, and it resolves that storyline. Mika is the girl who comes to Kate for help, and through that mission kate meets ramon who runs a shop nearby ramon turns out to be mika's girlfriend kate meets quinn a student at the local university who becomes her tech genius and also johnny ramon's brother uh, and the scene where they have their little osu osu moment is super cute so that's the main romantic interest i would say 
Although there is not really a romance or anything. These are young adults. And so they obviously have relationships, but it doesn't take over the comic. It's just really cute. What I liked about Quinn, too, is that he was totally grossed out by the guy's behavior. And I'm like, yeah, you are a nice dude. Like, but a real one, not a capital letters nice guy. Hashtag not all nice guys. <laughs> yeah. So if this sounds great, you should check it out. And now we're going to talk about some spoiler stuff from the comic. So you can move on to the next segment if you don't want to be spoiled for Hawkeye Kate Bishop. And you don't because it's great. You should go read it. Spoiler tag! What did you think about the villain of the first arc? I had mixed feelings about it. Because this girl is being stalked. And Kate finds her stalker, who is the type of person who is oblivious to the negative consequences of what he's been doing. Oh, but I love her as though that explains and excuses any kind of behavior. But that kind of feeds into the larger narrative of the of the first four issues in which there is this guy who is feeding off hatred to become this monstrosity, I guess. And he does that by brainwashing people I couldn't tell you whether this guy, for example, Mika's stalker, because he kept saying, oh, I didn't do this. I didn't want to do this. So in a way, that story like kind of like detracts from actual stalkers and people who do that on their own by excusing him because he was being brainwashed. At the same time, though, I wish he had been a little bit clearer on whether those people there were being brainwashed already had that darkness inside them and they were being tapped for it yeah that's how i took it but i agreed that it's a little bit ambiguous and i wish it had been clearer the way i read it is that the guy who was specifically stalking mika online was just gross he was a creep he was the guy that comes into the coffee shop and ignores your headphones that guy we all know that guy yeah i met one just last night yes then there is a cult on campus, which apparently gets tapped too, which feels very much like it's apping the recent spate of white supremacist, sexist groups that already exist. Yeah, because the group's motto was take back control, right? With everything that is happening just this weekend in America, it really felt very topical. I agree that you have a good point about the ambiguity. I really liked it because it tied together stuff that women go through all the time. But yeah, I really wish it had been a little more clear and explicit about whether the people were like being controlled or if they were doing it on their own. Because there is no excuse for this type of behavior at all in the real world. And he has plenty of that. So it's right there all the time. Women know about it. I felt a little bit not so sure because it wasn't very clear where the limits were kind of like oh everybody is innocent but mm. i don't think everybody is innocent from sending emails and stalking somebody online on the plus side at least the comic did come down on the whole women do not deserve to be harassed really really hard mm -hmm. mika gets saved and her and ramon have this cute little moment at the denouement of this plot where love conquers the hatred and it's also how the big guy is defeated in the end. How like he's so big and inflated with all the hatred. And then Kate takes him towards the sound of music showing at the beach. The songs of love kind of like defeat him. This guy ties into 
a larger story that's happening by connecting this guy that Kate captures, who's doing all this, to Kate's father, who is missing. She's looking for him. Yeah, that's the larger arc. When he's caught, the cop, I didn't mention this earlier, but I love that a local cop, she's a detective, and her and Kate become mentor and mentee, and it's super great. The cop calls Kate down to the precinct to talk to this guy, and while they're talking, the guy references Kate's dad, then he explodes. And you get the feeling that he was exploded remotely. Yes. For trying to talk about Kate's dad. I'm intrigued to see what's going on there. The second storyline was uh, an Inhuman storyline, where uh, a lady is looking for her missing sister. I really liked this one. It tackled relationships between sisters. It had Jessica and Kate's mentor-mentee relationship, which was way more like a collaboration than a hierarchical system, which I talked about in my text review of this volume. And it felt so much like other mentor relationships I've had, where you enrich each other instead of just like the mentor descending from on high. Absolutely, yes. I like that it tackled beauty standards. This woman who was missing looked a certain way, and then she got hit by Terrigen Mist, and she changed, because when humans come in contact with Terrigen, it unlocks their powers if they have the gene. So she became super beautiful, but she now transforms into a dragon, randomly. So it's kind of saying, just being beautiful won't make you happy. But it was, it was not a condemnation of beauty, However, it did show how she didn't feel comfortable in her own skin anymore. At the same time that it showed how men are so super fucking official. And that also ties in with Kate's dad. Because the boyfriend kind of like a crush or someone who had a crush on her knows of a guy who can change bodies. And I'm guessing that's exactly the same thing that happened to the guy from the first four issues. That's Kate's dad. Jessica Jones in this was super funny, and I loved all Kate's asides where she just picks up advice. I think overall, this comic was really good at showing that Kate is really competent and strong and smart, but she's still learning. Yeah, and also doesn't have superpowers. She does not. She's just got a lot of great physical skills. One good example, I think, that summarizes this way Kelly Thompson wrote her to make her competent but still learning still young is that when she's trying to find information about where Mika might have gone she goes to the campus and she wants to use a computer so she steals somebody's ID and like puts her hair up and wears a disguise and goes into the computer lab she's using the computer and this is how she meets Quinn and he asks her if she needs any help and she gets really angry when he calls her Sunshine because he goes hey Sunshine can I help you and she gets really really upset and it's because she stole the id without looking at the name on the id because if she had looked at the name on the id when she stole it she would have known that and so it's these little small things that thompson does to show us that kate is still learning how to do this job without undermining her right yes absolutely without making her sound incompetent or fragile she's learning it's a process yeah i love this comic i'm super excited for the next one I love the voice in the comic. It's funny, it's snarky. It kind of like carries from the fraction Hawkeye, right? The the voice is kind of like still there. So kind of like I really like that Thompson still manages to capture that character that already existed. 
Yeah, if you liked uh, Hawkeye L.A. Woman, this will definitely be where you want to go next. It's wonderful. Yeah. So how many space bees? Five. I'm giving it four. What? Yeah, I'm giving it four. You taught me into four. You taught, You just taught me into five. That's really funny. Is it because of my comments about... Yes. So it was all your comments about women that made me want to give it five. I think it's fine. We just switched. It's fine. It's still nine. That's a lot of space bees. There's a balance in the force. So the next volume of this comic comes out in December. Hawkeye, Kate Bishop, Anchor Points is, again, by Kelly Thompson, Leonardo Romero, Michael Walsh, and Jordi Belair. And you can find it wherever you get your comics. Our guest today has a list of achievements that stretches into the horizon. She's an award-winning writer, editor, and podcaster. You can read her work in recent publications like Kaleidoscope, an anthology of why speculative short fiction from 12th Planet Press, and hear her talking about SFF culture and news on the Hugo Award-winning podcast, Galactic Suburbia. Hello, Tenzi. Welcome to Fangirl Happy Hour. Hi, it's lovely to be here. That was a very nice intro. Thank you. This is the best crossover event since <laughs> Buffy showed up in Angel and they had sex. Since CSI Miami showed up on CSI New York. Anna, what have you got planned for us during this episode? <laughs> Nothing. We don't even need to plan anything for this to be the best thing ever. Okay, no pressure. I'm going to need you to, to rewind and go back to the Angel and Spike thing. No, while Angel is back, Buffy showed up in Angel and they had sex. And then he forgot all about it. That killed my heart. I cried so much during that episode. I think I just misunderstood you. Because the way I heard that is that Angel and Spike had sex. Oh, Renee. No, that wasn't till season five. Come on. I'm predictable. My goals for this episode have now radically changed. <laughs> I have to say. Oh my god, can you imagine if that had happened? It did in fandom. I bet. Did you ship Spike and Angel? Me? Well, did either of us? Any of you? You just literally never occurred to me that this was a thing until just now. Well, like the Spike Angel Drew triangle was pretty clearly a triangle. I kind of assumed that was canon, both in season two and in flashbacks. That's true. I forgot about that. I wasn't in Buffy fandom. Buffy was actually the, the first fandom I kind of put my toe in the water with in that I actually started reading fic for it and it was online and it was all very exciting. That was when I was so fell in love with Buffy during season two and then between season two and season three screening in Australia, I managed to find and read the screenplays of almost all of season three, which kind of in retrospect completely ruined season three for me. Like I really enjoyed reading those screenplays, but I had to be that like watching episodes without having done that ahead of time is kind of better. So I taught myself a very important lesson that year. I was super into Buffy and in Brazil we were, I think, behind a little bit. But it was the first time where I was actually trying to go online to get information about something that was media related. And I found, I think it was called Spoilers Layer Forum. And I think this is the first time that I learned the word spoiler. And then I was reading everything. So I think we were one week behind in Brazil. And then I would go to that website and read all the spoilers for the next episode and be prepared. <laughs> and that was around season five because I knew 
what happened at the end of season five one week in advance and I was prepared for it. Actually, that would probably be better. I think it was through starting to read fic with Buffy. I, it was the first time I came across that thing of the ship that squeaks you out. I'm a multi-shipper, so it's actually quite hard to find a ship that I'm not like, yeah, I'm on board with this. Because I'm normally on board with like 90% of all ship. But it was Willow Angel. I couldn't cope. Oh. It was just no. No, what? exactly. Oh. I know, what? right? But I also discovered my first crack ship, which was Xander Batman, which you would not think would work. But there was this just amazing fic, which was all about Xander. It wasn't about them getting together. It was about Xander and Batman explaining to all their friends that they were now together. Still hands down best fanfic I've ever read. Xander and Batman. Xander and Batman. Just imagine Xander explaining to Buffy how he's now dating Batman. Just so good. That is a, the best crossover ever. I'm really sure I didn't make that up. I wish I'd made that up. I'm sure someone can find the fic. So that we can show it to the world. Meanwhile, the person who has not yet even finished Buffy is like, okay. Yeah, when does Batman show up? <laughs> is this happening in season six or seven? Oh, it's totally like very close to the end of season seven. So you have to hang in there right to the end. I think with Buffy, the first time I watched it was when it first started. I watched the first three episodes and then my cable company got rid of the channel it aired on or it went to another channel that we didn't get. It got moved. This was in the early days like of UPN in my area and Buffy went there and I could not follow. Then I didn't see any episodes again until I watched the latter half of season five. Wow, that's quite a leap. Yeah, I was very confused. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Then all of a sudden Willow is gay and... and half the characters are gone. And It was very confusing. I recently had my big Buffy rewatch, which I hadn't rewatched it for years and years and years, but I decided that my daughter was old enough. To, she was turned 12 over, over the summer. And so we watched Buffy all the way through together, which was a fascinating experience because it was like such a beloved rewatch for me, but also it's so old now. And she's like so young and snarky and with it, but also kind of already very suspicious about her media. Like she came to this knowing that Joss Whedon kills people, for instance. So every time Oz came on screen, she's like, he's going to die in this episode, isn't he? So <laughs> she was, you know, she was hardened to the realities of what the show can kind of do for you. But uh, it was a really interesting experience. I think she may actually be ready for Veronica Mars. It's quite exciting. Did she like Buffy then in the end? She really liked it, yeah. She liked it in a different way to how I liked it, I think. And she liked it, like, there's stuff about it that she kind of disapproved, but we had some really great conversations about it. Like, for instance, the whole Willow Tara thing, and like the historical perspective of how presenting a lesbian relationship on screen has changed since Buffy. She reads all sorts of comics and sees TV shows and she sees gay relationships sort of presented in all sorts of different ways. And the idea of like, like yeah, see how it went the kiss that like stopped the nation that people kept talking about this lesbian kiss. It's like, that's a year after they've been obviously dating, sleeping together, are now living together and sharing a bed. And they shoved the kiss into the episode where other traumatic stuff is happening, you know, hoping to slide it, it by. So she found that kind of stuff quite interesting I think I hope she did because she got many pop culture history lectures while watching she's used to that from me you know who else is ready for Veronica Mars Anna hasn't seen it what are you talking about have you when wow when I asked you about it 
I feel so lucky to be here for this conversation. No, you didn't ask me about it because I would have said the truth. Of course I've seen it. I've seen <laughs> the show. I've seen the movie. Anna, I asked you about this like three months ago and you were like, no, I haven't seen that show. Renee, are you sure this conversation was with me? Yes. So maybe I misunderstood and it was some, something else because I have watched Veronica Mars. Okay, good. I was about to be like, wait a second. I am not nuts. I remember this conversation. So again, it was like the chariots of the God thing. It's fine. For the record, I do not recall this conversation. <laughs> Which is not a surprise. Your memory is not. It's terrible. But like, I wouldn't have forgotten Veronica Mars. You don't forget Veronica Mars. Okay, I'm really relieved. I'm a little disappointed because that means you cross it off the bucket list, right? Maybe you need to do a rewatch. Maybe. <laughs> see if it holds up. I would like to see if my, my love for Logan would hold up. It's hard to see that aging well, but I don't know. It's the bad boy thing, isn't it? It's like the, the older you get, the more embarrassing it is. But at the same time, it's not like there was that much competition. Duncan is still going to be terrible. We're going to get so many emails from people who love Duncan going, excuse you. Who loves Duncan? I know friends who like him a whole lot. Really? Oh, no. Because it's not like Angel and Spike. It's like nice guy TM. Oh, though, speaking of which, uh, watching, I don't know if you guys have watched Glow yet, which is the Netflix women's wrestling show. There, a character turns up who's a kind of douchey rich boy producer. And I'm like, who is this, that guy? Why does his face look so familiar, even though he's dressed like in 80s, which is like, you know, it confuses you. And it was Piz, is that his name? Who was like, you know, the boring third season boyfriend. Ugh. Him. And was still like weirdly still around by the for the movie. And it's just like, really? He's much better in Glow, which is to say he's terrible, but he's much better as a terrible character than like a nice character. So do you recommend Glow then? Oh, I loved it. And even where like there's problematic stuff, it's really interesting, problematic, crunchy stuff. And I like how fast it is. It's like these really punchy, it's like sitcom length episodes, but it's more drama than comedy. But it is quite funny. And it's just this huge cast of women being really interesting and punching each other. And it's so 80s. It's so 80s. You've got 80s music, 80s clothes, 80s training montages. There's a lot to like in it. I'm so in. I'm so, I'm definitely going to get to watch this, maybe even today, stunt. Yeah. So, the, But it's interesting that you say that it's fast because most of the reviews that I have seen mention how slow it is. No, no, because, I mean, the episodes are like 20 minutes and it's really punchy. It's quite emotional. I mean, yeah, if you watch it all in one go, which, you know, we spread it out probably over about a week and a half with one or two episodes a night. And, yeah, it was always a shock that the episode was over. It was a little bit – it was very fast and punchy. If you tried to like sit and watch it over a whole weekend, as I know some people did, it probably as a kind of edited together, I guess what, six hour movie or something. Yeah, I can see how that would be kind of slow. No, I loved it. And I really liked seeing Alison Brie, who I did like in Community, but she's sort of that high, peppy, super cutesy schoolgirl character. And here she's playing somebody very different, very difficult to like, and actually kind of embracing her inner villain. There's a lot of really interesting stuff about women and the perceptions of them in the entertainment industry. There's a lot of cool stuff in it. I, I've seen some, a lot of the criticism, and I think it's right, a lot of the stuff they don't delve into perhaps quite deeply enough, but hopefully they'll have future seasons to do that because this is a really good start. And just seeing like so many different kinds of women all together in this massive ensemble and they're not in a prison 
one of the National Australian Science Fiction Conventions a couple of years ago, it was just as Bitch Planet had come out, the comic. And there was Orange is the New Black. There was also Wentworth, which is the Australian, it was the reboot of Prisoner Cell Block prisoner which was you know the australian classic female prison drama so we had these like three huge female ensemble media things but all based around prisons it's like can we have other scenarios i think the panel ended up discussing things like the golden girls quite a bit and you know where are these shows but yeah glow glow is a really good step in right it's like like wonder woman it's one of those things where it's a good thing in itself but also hopefully a really good commercial precedent that this kind of show can work that it doesn't have to be equal, balanced. No, we can just like make a show that's just about women. And that's not a problem. Yeah. I think we should take all the shows right now that have majority male casts and just reboot them all with women. Well, it's like how they're doing these reshoots for Justice League. And it's like, you know what? I think pretty much every Hollywood movie could do with having like 15 minutes of Amazons added to it. Exactly. Like, why not? Like, let's face it. That, that's probably what would have saved things like The Mummy or Baywatch, like the Baywatch movie. Do you think it really would have tanked so badly if they'd had 15 minutes of Amazons fighting in the first 15 minutes? I don't think so. We could remake the Voltron thing. Yeah. I'm currently watching that. And I was just like, wow, there's so many dudes here. I remember that from watching it like the first time around. I, I remember that and Battle of the Planets were on when I was little. And there was lots of playing them in the playground. But each of them only had one female character. And so if you had a group of friends and more than one woman in the group, then it was like, well, who gets to be the girl character? So it was very frustrating. Looking back on my childhood, yeah, I had a lot of the Smurfette principle. Obviously, there's reasons that I flocked to things like Rainbow Bright, My Little Pony. Well, like Jem and the Holograms, which I loved as a kid because my daughter is called Jemima, my youngest. When she was first born, I thought Jem was going to be her nickname. I turned out to be hilariously wrong, but I thought that was going to be her nickname. So I bought like a DVD of the first season or the first like six episodes or something of the original Jem and the Holograms. Like it's such a terrible... (laughs) It's just so terrible. But, like, I watch it and the songs come on and my little heart just, you know, it grows three sizes. It's still, like, the songs are still amazing. It is really quite legit terrible. I have a Barbie tape like that because when I was a kid, they'd released this disco dance Barbie and I got it for Christmas and it came with a cassette tape and it has these amazing songs on it that I go and I listen to now. And if you like 80s music, I totally want these songs. I don't think I have ever watched any of those. And I'm thinking that my favorite childhood cartoon was Dungeons and Dragons. And that had two women, Diana and Sheila. And one of them was a black woman. I do remember that from like Saturday, back when we had Saturday morning cartoons in Australia. I think it was one that came along quite late-ish when I was sort of watching cartoons. So I don't remember, I don't remember there being a lot of it. Probably much like you in Brazil, the TV we got was kind of erratic. You'd get a season of something and then you'd never hear of it again. And we didn't have Wikipedia back then. I remember because I was obsessed, like high key obsessed with Grange Hill, which is the British school 
comprehensive soap, basically, for kids. And it came to Australian TV so erratically. Like, it would usually be on our national broadcaster, which is the ABC. Sometimes it would be on after school. And sometimes they'd do that thing, like, over the holidays where they'd just show an episode every day for two and a half weeks and then it was over. I, I was always so stressed at the possibility that I might miss it because I was deeply obsessed. It was one of the first shows I was so fanish about. I collected the books. And, in fact, a couple of years ago I found out that all the early seasons I never got to see were on YouTube and I just, like, spent a good chunk of a summer holiday watching them. <laughs> like, 70s school soap just because i finally got to see the no shame no shame no shame grange hill was actually kind of awesome for its time like it was one of those shows that was quite weirdly progressive it was totally the whole after school special kind of earnest real life issues kind of show but because it was london it was just unbearably exotic to me because i'm sort of australian but with an english mother who didn't really approve of me watching tv shows that weren't english like she didn't really approve of american tv but she didn't really approve of australian tv either i watched a lot of british content as a child from memory, like I feel like my entire childhood was watching Dungeons and Dragons. So I remember it being on TV all the time. Yeah. When I moved here, I actually got the DVDs and there was only 28 episodes altogether of this thing that I have a memory of watching my entire childhood. It's funny. Maybe it's one of the things they just repeated over and over. It's like in Australia, we had that with a couple of shows, particularly Doctor Who and The Goodies, the British show The Goodies. Uh, and they were repeated so often. I think they must have got like, the ABC must have got a special deal for how many times they were allowed to repeat these shows. So the sort of 70s era Doctor Who got repeated over and over for about 15 years, which means that my partner, who's 10 years older than me, has the same childhood TV memories that I do because the, the same shows were being repeated. Not even just those shows, but like the little cartoons that were in, stuck in between them as well. Like it's all very strange, but it means that there's actually this whole generation generation between 40 something and 50 something in Australia that's just so deeply immersed in classic Doctor Who regardless of any kind of geeky credentials it's just like huge numbers of us just watched because it was on all the time at that crucial sort of 5 30 in the afternoon time slot that reminds me of Dallas that was a late night thing here so and have you heard of Dallas I have heard of Dallas but only as a pop culture thing that pops up here and yeah. there. I don't think it was ever on Brazil. It was a show that my dad loved and he was super into it. And I remember all the drama when, you know, who shot whoever, the dude. JR, I know that. Thank you. I mostly know it from The Simpsons. So it was watching live and then after it ended, they started showing repeats of it. I swear Dallas became like a defining feature of my media intake just because my dad put it on repeat. He loved this show. Sometimes I get really confused because I can't tell reality from Dallas. Even now, sometimes well, there will be situations in which I think something that had happened in Dallas was real. Oh my God. It's really strange how media can do that to you. Especially when you're quite young, the stuff that gets inside your head. Dancy, would you say that in Australia you get more media from the UK rather than from the US? No, we definitely get a lot from the US. We always have, but probably more now than, say, when I was younger. But a big part of that is how our TV networks are set up too, because like when I was little, there was 
the ABC, which is the national broadcaster, which is like free to everybody. And then there's like, was like one or two commercial stations, which was slightly different depending on which states you're in. And they all kind of borrowed each other's or used each other's content. And the commercial stations probably have a higher percentage of US content. Whereas the ABC used to get a lot of its stuff straight from the BBC and from Britain. If you were just watching the ABC, which is not just the film, which doesn't have as many ads and stuff like that, then you would get a much higher percentage of the British stuff. Pretty much until the thing that changed was... It was around about the time that things like Sherlock and Downton Abbey got really huge and suddenly the commercial networks realised, hey, this British stuff actually can bring in the expensive eyeballs. Something like Downton Abbey you would always have on the ABC. That's where you get your costume dramas. That's where you get your British content. And we are a British colony, you know, so that's always sort of been a big part of our identity. But suddenly it was all going to the commercial networks. And in fact, the ABC lost its deal to get all the BBC stuff first, which it used to have, except for Doctor Who, because it knew that it couldn't mess with Australians and Doctor Who. Like, it's got to be on the ABC. Uh, We also have SBS, which is a a fascinating, like that was set up when I was a kid. And it's it's, it's world culture is the the focus of the, the channel. So it has an awful lot of European content, has an awful lot of other language content. For instance, they do the news in lots of different languages, lots of world movies. They're the ones that actually screen the soccer and things like that. And that was mainly when it was set up in the 80s, it was to appeal to the the high migrant population in Australia. But it means we have that world perspective and stuff. And now we have like every, all the digital channels and all the pay TV and Netflix and there's just so much stuff now. But when I was younger, there were only these few channels. And so I like to say there wasn't as much American content, but the truth is I was highly filtered because my mother doesn't approve of American TV. She thinks they're just shouting at each other. So we just didn't watch it. I can count on like one hand the number of American shows, apart from Saturday morning obviously, which was mine and she was, you know, she wasn't paying attention. We just didn't watch American TV. It was, it was all British stuff, which was how I kind of grew up with a slightly British accent in the middle of Australia. But that was like specific to my family. That's really interesting. In Brazil, it's like we didn't get, at least when I was growing up, we didn't get any British television at all. It was all American songs and American TV shows and the TV shows were all dubbed. I didn't get a chance to actually hear things in English until I moved here. But yeah, it's heavily influenced by by the US. Everything really, like from having shopping malls to TV, music, movies, so much. We also have this really strange thing here in Australia where we don't really believe in our own success stories. There's this sense of faint embarrassment about anybody who's like like celebrities, you know, people who are super successful, like pop stars and stuff. And it's only when they go overseas and get overseas success that they sort of start being accepted here. Like somebody like Kylie, for instance, it wasn't cool to like Kylie Minogue for a really long time in Australia. She kind of had to go off to Britain and get success there in order to kind of it to be grudgingly accepted as a success story in Australia. But we have this reverse thing as well, like British people get really into the Australian soaps. And so an actor who's been on a couple of a couple of years of Home and Away or Neighbours or whatever can go over to UK and get a lot of work because they have a higher recognition factor in some ways in, in Britain than they do here. 
or they go on the pantomime circuit and stuff because they're seen as really big celebrities. Yeah, I don't know. There's this odd give and take between Britain and Australia and it's not always comfortable because there's the sort of sense of rivalry and yeah, there's sort of an, an aggressive undercurrent there too, which comes from being a colony that hasn't quite left. And bringing it back to science fiction and fantasy, for example, is that a similar thing that happens too? Or do you see the SFF community in Australia as different or as part of? Uh, Yeah, we absolutely have had that. One of the big differences with Australian science fiction publishing is we really didn't start getting commercially successful science fiction fantasy publishing in Australia until the mid-90s. And you can like tag it to the specific author because it was Sarah Douglas and you can tag it to the specific publisher because that was when HarperCollins Voyager really kicked off in the mid-90s. And they had a string of really successful epic fantasy series, mostly written by women, which has meant a very different very different assumptions around our local book industry with science fiction and fantasy than overseas where they have a much longer tradition and a much more male author priority kind of tradition. But we have absolutely, we have authors here who sell much better overseas and like they might struggle to get their next contract here in Australia, but their books are on billboards in the London underground. We have that, you know, I think to actually make it an Australian author to make it overseas is that thing as well. Actually trying to break out overseas is, is a really difficult thing. And it usually happens through the mainstream presses, though sometimes not. You have people like Angela Slater, for instance, who is one of our premier short story writers. She's just had her first debut novel out last year. And she has done a fantastic job of placing herself with several very high profile indie kind of smaller boutique presses, but in the UK and the US to get her stuff out there and seen. Uh, And when she sold her first novel, it was to Joe Fletcher books in the UK. So that was kind of interesting as somebody who like, she's more of a literary fantasy kind of author, I guess her stuff's quite cerebral. It's not necessarily what you think of as mainstream commercial fantasy those seem like really sensible decisions, but pretty much every Australian author I know has trodden a different path. And we look at somebody like Margot Lanigan and her path to success is bizarre and makes no sense. She wrote some really amazing YA short story collections, which won a bunch of awards and started getting noticed. And they got noticed enough that she started getting awards internationally. And then people started commissioning her to write novels. You see that happening like that path of, well, you write short stories and you get noticed and you get offers to write novels and stuff. But she would do original collections of short stories that were published. You know, that's not a path you've seen with anybody else. Like she only started getting published in the big magazines, for instance, because of the success of those collections. It's like every writer has had to sort of dig a new trail through the bush because a lot of what's seen as conventional publishing wisdom doesn't necessarily work when you're working from Australia. And just because somebody else has followed one particular path doesn't mean that that path is still there for the next person. So we're all, we're all wild west out here. Would you say that it's because it has a smaller population and not a lot of fan culture around science fiction and fantasy in Australia as opposed to that in the US? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look, we have a much smaller population and we have a ridiculous population in that it's small, but it's geographically arranged in a very strange way. So we're all very distant from each other. We have a handful of cities compared to 
either say the UK or the US in particular, uh, all very, very spread out. So we do have fan culture and quite passionate, active fan culture, but everything is small. You know, our national science fiction convention where we do our big awards and stuff like that, you're sometimes pushing to get more than three or 400 people to that. When we host a world con, it has 2000 people there and that's crazy big for a fan convention here but of course it's small potatoes as far as world cons go you know long con was ten thousand. i know that was ridiculously big but we're the other end of the scale yeah we so we do have fan community but everything is small everything is very diy and even though we have one of the probably highest percentages of like readers per capita we actually have a lot of readers in australia you know we're no finland but we're pretty high up there but even so, it's very, very hard to make a living here as a writer unless you're also selling overseas. The exception being probably the children's authors and some of the nonfiction authors and, of course, you know, your handful of bestsellers. But the majority of authors, and certainly in genre, if you want to actually be earning a living, you've got to be selling books overseas and very few of us get there. Has self-publishing taken off there in any, in any shape or form, do you know? Yeah, there's lots of self-publishing here. I mean, there always has been, even before technology made it a lot easier. There were a lot of garages full of books back in the day, particularly in the smaller communities. Like I live in Tasmania, which is a very small, it's the island down the bottom of Australia. Hobart, the city where I live, has a very active literary community, very little genre at all. There's pretty much me and a few others. But like, you know, even having a few others is quite new and exciting. So it's mostly a very literary community and their small presses are like micro presses. But yeah, absolutely, they're self-publishing and you're seeing quite a few authors, you know, reaching readers that way. Yeah, I've seen quite a few who've sort of done the self-publishing route and it's led to something bigger. People like uh, C.S. Pacat, for instance, who's a an Australian writing sort of fantasy but with like steamy romance aspect and queer characters and that sort of thing finding an audience through self-publishing and now she's gone mainstream and sold to a bigger publisher so yeah we do have those sort of things and lots of down the ground self-publishing and lots of small presses i mean for australia the science fiction was in the small presses before the 90s before voyager came along almost all science fiction or fantasy releases within australia were some form of small press and then even after Voyager got going and a few other publishers started coming in, there have been very few commercially successful science fiction titles. It's mostly been epic fantasy has been where the money is and the, the bookshop space. Most of the science fiction was kept alive through small press and short fiction. Like there's probably been, I'll probably make an idiot of myself if I try and guess at numbers, but pretty much as far as Australian published short story collections, there have been just so few. There have been a couple edited by Jack Dan. There have been a, maybe a couple of others with the big publishers. Jonathan Strawn, of course, is Australian, though almost all of his books are published overseas and he's like a premier anthologist. But there have been very, very few commercial anthologies. So it's been the small presses keeping the short story alive and viable with a few commercial outlier exceptions every now and then. Speaking of short fiction and short fiction anthologies, you recently finished a Kickstarter for one. I did. I did. Kickstarter is, is terrifying. 
It's so scary. It's so big. Yes, I did. This was for Mother of Invention, which is going to be a really exciting anthology about artificial intelligence stories with female creators of artificial intelligence and robots. And also we're extending this to look at creators of less represented genders as well. We're, we're kind of getting away from the, the male creative artificial intelligence, which of course has always been held up as the women can make babies, so men make robots. It's the whole Dr. Frankenstein thing. And it's like, well, you know what? I think we can get to more complicated ideas than that. So that's what we're, we're trying to do. And this is with 12th Planet Press, who are you know, obviously one of my favourite uh, small presses here in Australia, though Elisa is kind of separating herself from the small press line as much as possible. It's hard to know what to call them because they used to be indie presses, but you can't really use indie anymore because indie now means self-publishing. We, had, we were resisting that for quite a while because indie had a very specific meaning in publishing, but it did change and you've got to embrace change. So we, we, we tried with boutique press for a while, which is like, don't expect the books to be cheap, but they'll be small and great. Micro presses too. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, micro press means we're doing, we're doing without a budget, but we're going to, you know, make a damn good book. But something I've sort of often talked about is the small presses are often the ones that manage the overseas distribution and the promotional stuff in ways that the bigger publishers, certainly in Australia, have not got a handle on yet. As an author who's worked with both, I find that really, really interesting. Uh, like some of my best distributed works have been through 12th Planet Press, for instance. Like I have a small collection called Love and Roman Punk that came out with 12th Planet Press. That was my first book that got proper international distribution to the point where there's a university in Texas that teaches it as one of its set texts. What? I know, which is very exciting to me. I read uh, that. Yeah. It's really good. I love it. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm editing. I don't edit very often. I love it, but... You know, I do so many things. I don't have time for much, but I was pulled back to the editing space a couple of years ago with a friend, Tahani Croft, and we edited Cranky Ladies of History together, which was also a crowdfunded anthology. Uh, so yeah, we went bigger, bigger and bigger for this one. So it was 12th Planet Press's first Kickstarter as well. They'd crowdfunded Kaleidoscope a couple of years ago and Defying Doomsday, which came out last year, which was the anthology about people with different forms of chronic illness and disability dealing with the apocalypse. So, you know, following in the lines of those really exciting books. I'm editing it with Rivka Raphael, who's a new editor to fiction, though she's an experienced science editor, which kind of needed to bring in somebody with more of the science credentials because that's not my strongest area. Yeah, and we just had this crazy whirlwind June in which we raised a bunch of money for the book. I'm really excited about it because, number one, robots. Yeah, robots. And then some of the listed authors like Shannon McGuire, and Issy Shaw, I was like, I'm there when it comes out to be purchased. You know, really exciting authors. We were really glad that so many of our favourites said yes. So we're hoping to bring in some more diversity, some newer authors. But it's exciting. Robot stories. Oh, I cannot wait for that. The crowdfunding is just kind of overwhelming. <laughs> it's like leaping off a big cliff and then just asking people to give you money for a month. It's very confronting. Thea and I are about to start our own Kickstarter too. And it's very... Yeah. It's overwhelming, actually. First of all, just the calculations are long that you have to do. Yes. 
with regards to fees and Amazon fees and how much Kickstarter and Amazon charge on top of everything. So basically, you need an X amount. You have to ask for X plus Y plus Z in order yeah, to it make is, it. It's terrifying because you hear about so many people who they fulfill their, their, their Kickstarter, they reach their goal, but they still end up deeply in the red. And you can see how it happens. Like we made a few errors coming in. Factoring in postage is a special kind of nightmare, uh, let alone the fact that you're talking about, like in our case, we're talking about a publishing project that'll be happening next year. And we don't know that postage in Australia isn't going to like triple because that's the sort of thing that's been happening lately. And then there is this, that thing of asking for money. I kept reminding myself of that Amanda Palmer, was it a TED talk? she did about asking the art of asking for money and had that whole thing of like because you know she worked as a busker and just that thing of holding out your hand and asking for someone to pay you and how that can be really hard as an artist because a big part of you is kind of convinced that what you create isn't worth something at a monetary level group projects are good because then you can kind of tell yourself that you're sort of spruiking for your partner you're selling the project not yourself there are other people relying on you to get out there and like tweet all the time and do that stuff but I came out the other side feeling really empowered in some ways and actually realizing that I needed to do more in taking responsibility for promoting my own stuff and not just the project that is attached to a publisher who will have to pay for any of my budgetary mistakes, you know? Yeah. So it was a very worthwhile experience, but yeah, it is, it is terrifying as an artist, as, as a woman in public, just that thing of asking to be paid. It does feel very uncomfortable, but yeah, no, so as long as you've triple checked your budget. Well, congratulations on funding it. Thank you. I'm really excited to read it when it comes out. I am too. Okay. To wrap up. Yes. Name five Australian women writers that you think are the most important for people to check out and read. That's a hard, look, it's an amazing question, but I'm also like, oh, who am I going to leave out? Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, I've already mentioned Angela Slater and Margot Lanigan, both novelists, but particularly in, in the field of short stories. Absolutely. Kate Forsyth, I don't think her books have really made it as far outside our shores as they should. Her work is extraordinary, but her last probably three or four or five titles have been fantastic combinations of historical fantasy and fairy tale. So Bitter Greens is her still her best novel, which I love, but she's written a bunch of others based around combining fairy tales with, you know, gritty historical fantasy. Speaking of historical fantasy, I'm very excited. Kim Wilkins is one of our, um, you know, she's been writing almost as longer than longer than me I judge everybody's career by when I started which was 19 years ago uh her first novel came out the year before mine but Kim has come back and forth in a bunch of different authors she's actually one of Australia's most successful women sort of women's fiction authors she writes those sort of rural romance literary lovely scenery on the book cover kind of books which is how she makes you know actual money at this so she writes as as Kimberly Freeman, and she's also one of our academic success stories. She works at the University of Queensland, and she's ushered a lot of Australian authors through their PhD, which is very exciting because it allows them to actually pays them to write for three years. Uh, but no, most recently she started this series of uh, epic historical fantasy with a very kind of Viking sensibility, and they're wonderful books. Okay, I'm going to talk about Karen Warren, who is a fantastic 
writer who I cannot in all conscious recommend to everybody because she is the sweetest person in the world and she writes some of the most horrific, bone-crunching, soul-chilling horror. Honestly, like I look at her works and it's like, do I actually want to read another Karen Warren novel? Because I think it will make me feel dead inside. That's the kind of horror that she writes. Uh, and her last novel, which I haven't read because I'm afraid of her work. Uh, her last novel, The Grief Hole, won the, the Dittmar this year. She wins a lot of awards. She gets short stories out there in anthologies overseas. She's one of those people who's getting her work out there, but she's not nearly as well known as she should be, even though she's just had so much done now so she's one if the like creepy disturbing horror is your thing then karen warren will steal your soul i can already tell that anna's gonna be like let's read one of these books from the podcast (laughs) she always does that when we get reckless it's great but it's been really lovely to have you on the show oh it's been so lovely to talk to you guys i've this has been on my bucket list it's pretty much since you started oh you were a huge supporter of the podcast since the start. Thank you. You and Alex and Elisa are our podcasting mentors. Oh, that's wonderful because paying the stuff forward is always something that's been really important to us. Like we started, there weren't enough women in podcasts talking about the stuff we wanted women to be talking about, you know, and having more and more of them out there, it's exactly what we wanted to have happen. And you did it. You know, it's pretty cool. It's time for recommendations. Anna, what have you got for us this week? So we recently read The Handmaid's Tale. And very recently, I came across a really interesting article that was published up on electricliterature.com. And it was called The Epilogue of The Handmaid's Tale Changes Everything You Thought You Knew About the Book. It was written by Anna Schaeffer. That was an excellent article in itself. But it was even greater because it made me rethink a book that was already very thinky. I read the epilogue and I had alarm bells going on through my head throughout reading it without realizing why. And she kind of like goes through and she writes this essay very firmly analyzing why and how the epilogue reframes the narrative because it is all about male historians. So even though the world has moved away from Gilead, it hasn't completely quite changed or destroyed patriarchy completely because her story is still framed by men and the way that they look at it. And there are really small elements of it that you can see in the epilogue. For example, the way that he describes the underground... He calls it underground frail road. Frail road, exactly. So that that gave me like so many alarm bells reading it, right? But it never quite clicked why. And this essay is excellent. Please go read it. What is your rec? My rec is for Rachel Maddow. Rachel has a show on MSNBC. And I admit that I don't really watch cable news much anymore. I don't like CNN, although I don't believe it is fake news. I don't watch any others. I definitely don't watch Fox News. I don't need to watch no state TV. Thank you. So I'm kind of out. I mostly get my news from the Washington Post or Twitter. But 
I really love Rachel's show. It's so good. She does news in this really in-depth, interesting way that I just feel is missing from a lot of modern reporting. For example, she has the first 20 minutes of her show. There's no commercials. She goes really deep on a topic. She'll start her segment in this really weird place. You're like, why are we talking about X when all the news of the day was about O and Q? But she will get you all the way from X through the alphabet to O and then Q and tie it all together and give you all this wonderful context and you learn so much. And I really think that her type of journalism, one day we're going to look back and it's going to have changed the world because it's so good. She's been on the Russia story since the very beginning. She won't let the president derail her. And it's really refreshing to see that because all the other shows, the president sends a tweet and suddenly they're in a tizzy going, oh my God, the president tweeted. And so I can watch Rachel without worrying that I'm going to get, you know, a 35 minute discussion on one tweet from Donald Trump. She doesn't do these massive panel discussions. Like sometimes I will turn on the news and there will be a panel discussion and the TV will be divided into literally like 11 sections with a head in each one of the sections. What the hell? How are you going to discuss something with that many? It's not doable. And it's really strange that we discuss news in this way. It's less like what happened and how we feel about it than how we're going to feel about it in two weeks. It's this really weird type of analysis and I just don't like it. And Rachel's show doesn't do that. So I highly recommend her show if you don't watch it. It's good for people who are new to all these issues, new to watching broadcast journalism or people like me who have history degrees and are not newbies. It's good for everybody. It's great. So highly recommended. I wonder if you can find it on YouTube. I bet you could probably find some of the stuff on their YouTube channel. They do have a YouTube channel. Excellent recommendations. Tell everybody what we'll be discussing next time. On our next Friday episode, I will not be here. Because I'll be on vacation for my 800 jobs, like Renee says. Yeah, I'll be on vacation at a undisclosed location where I will just turn everything off and sleep. She means go for 40 zillion walks up mountains, probably. Yes. But Renee will be holding out the fort with Susan, also Hugo Award winner, to discuss Final Fantasy VIII, Alana by Tamora Priest, and their favorite sequels. I will be back soon, I swear. Congratulations, Space Bees. You've made it to the end of episode 93. Thank you very much to Tansy for coming on our show and talking to us. You can find her on Twitter at TansyRR. She is also over on Patreon at Musketeer Space. And she's on another podcast besides Galactic Suburbia at Verity Podcast on Twitter. She does so many things. Thank you, Tansy. Yes, consume all the Tansies. Wait, that sounds wrong. Hi. If you have any thoughts, concerns, or questions, you can send them to us at fangirlhappyhour at gmail.com. You can chat with us on Twitter at fangirlpodcast, and we're also over on Tumblr and Facebook, too. If you want to help support our show, you can become a patron. 
Our Patreon address is patreon.com forward slash fangirlhappyhour. We appreciate all of our current patrons and those who will become patrons in the future. Hello, future patron bees. Our show art is by Ira and our transcripts are by Susan, which you can read at fangirlhappyhour.com. Our interstitial music this week is by Cheeky Beats and Boxcat Games. If you like the show, please stop by iTunes and leave us a review. Just pretend the stars are space bees and give us all five. Have you had some water recently? If not, go get some now. Take care of your meat suit. We like it and we want it to keep moving through the universe. There, there, there are so many advices I could give this week, but I'll just keep to don't be a Nazi. Don't be a Nazi. Don't be an auntie. Thanks for listening Space Bees. See you next episode. doing this for almost three years now three years shit Wee. <laughs> i broke anna i have no words today yeah you do they're there the, the words have gone Dig have out. gone from my ben if i negative self-talk myself you'll yell at me and jenny will yell yeah at me. you can't obviously can you hear all the dogs in my neighborhoods are all of a sudden going crazy not right now no no i can just they just stopped right now of course. When I said it. <laughs> yeah. They're messing with you. Typically. And it's like, oh god, Renee, don't don't do that. Don't, don't scare me. Freaking bad bugs. Don't be me, Anna. No, Renee, what are you talking about? I should I should be you. How many books have you read this year? A billion. 115. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trion is I hope that I wish that was our Patreon address. And fuck Confederacy statues. Just bring them all the fuck down!